a lot of the research was done on animals and it was done based on what was necessary to keep animals alive or if there's some really uh, obvious, real severe deficiency thing. And same thing in humans. Uh, in humans, it was what was necessary to keep them alive or because we don't experiment on humans, it's while there's some gross deficiency diseases we can, we can detect. So what happened then is we end up deciding that what was important were these molecules and elements in the food that are necessary for life, unless there was a really severe, obvious deficiency disease. So when you then add up all the vitamins and minerals and, uh, and you know, amino acids and fatty acids, things like that, turns out to be 42 molecules in total, molecules and elements in total. But then we look at food in the, its wild state and you ask the question, well, how many molecules are in food in the wild state? Turns out there's 50,000 molecules. So we decided that um, only 0.1% of what was in food was actually necessary for human health. And the other 99% was quote, unimportant. Welcome to another episode of the Capital Integrative Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wong. And today we have a really important episode in store for you with Dr. Joe Pizzorno. Dr. Bazorno is a transformational leader in medicine, recognized nationally and internationally with his pioneering work in naturopathic medicine and functional medicine. As founding president of Bastyr University in 1978, he coined the term science-based natural medicine and has authored many impactful books, including The Textbook of Natural Medicine and The Toxin Solution, books that we use in our clinic here today. Today we are shedding light on the unsung heroes in the nutrition world called Unimportant Molecules by Dr. Joe. And this is a topic of his recent article that was published in the Integrative Medicine a Clinician's Journal. In this conversation, Dr. Bazorno walks us through the hidden depths and remarkable impact of these quote-unquote unimportant molecules, which are actually some of the most important molecules that uh, affect our own health and wellness, and gives practical tips for improving your nutrition. So this is a bit of a mystery of what these unimportant molecules are. If you'd like to know more, please listen on. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Welcome back, Dr. Joe Pizzorno. Thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to our conversation. So in round two, we're really excited to have you back for a conversation all about unimportant molecules. And I know that that word sounds unimpressive, but but I'm sure we're going to really dive into the importance of that here. We had you back on episode 21 about how toxins are making us sick. And, and we really recommend for listeners who haven't listened to that conversation with Dr. Joe, uh, please go ahead and listen to that. It might give a good background to, to this highly recommended so today we're talking about a really important topic, actually, unimportant molecules. And that's a topic of an article you published in 2021 in Integrative Medicine, a clinician's journal. So let's start with the obvious question, Dr. Jeff, that's okay. What is an unimportant molecule and what led you to want to bring attention to these molecules? Thanks. So obviously um, that's, it was facetious to use the term unimportant, but I thought it would be a way to grab attention. Yeah. So, you know, I've been studying uh, nutrition research now for over half a century, and um, I've used it therapeutically a lot. But as I was looking into the research a few years ago, I had a sudden uh, revelation. And that is that so much of the core research that was done to determine what humans need from the food supply was done uh, over 100 years, 100 years ago. And 100 years ago, our understanding of physiology of the time was limited, and the technology we have for determining what was in food was limited. 
So a lot of the research was done on animals and it was done based on what was necessary to keep animals alive or if there's some really uh, obvious, real severe deficiency thing. And same thing in humans. Uh, in humans, it was what was necessary to keep them alive or because we don't experiment on humans, it's while well, there's some gross deficiency diseases we can, we can detect. So what happened then is we ended up deciding that what was important were these molecules and elements in the food that are necessary for life, unless there was a really severe, obvious deficiency disease. So when you then add up all the vitamins and minerals and uh, amino acids and fatty acids, things like that, turns out to be 42 molecules in total, molecules and elements in total. But then we look at food in the, its wild state and you ask the question, well, how many molecules are in food in the wild state? Turns out there's 50,000 molecules. So we decided that um, only 0.1% of what was in food was actually necessary for human health. And the other 99% was, quote, unimportant. Now, I didn't say it was unimportant, but by implication, it was unimportant because it wasn't important. So then uh, you look at what happens to food when it's grown chemically rather than organically. I no longer use the term conventional growing. I'm using the term convention, chemically growing foods. We chemically grow foods. Well, you do lose some of the vitamins and minerals. You definitely lose trace minerals. Uh, it's, it's not dramatic. Okay? It's real, but it's not dramatic. But if you look at the other molecules, well, when you grow foods chemically around organically, these other molecules are left. And now that you then add to it the hybridization and GMOs, which are all done for a specific purpose of creating higher levels of some particular molecules in the food. Well, necessarily, when you make a plant grow more of one molecule in the food, it's going to grow less of other molecules in the food. So you want more protein, that's fine. But we're not going to have as much flavonoids and carotenoids and things like this. So now when you compare, when you do really careful studies comparing organically grown foods to chemically grown foods, you'll find that many of these carotenoids and flavonoids, these things we call miraculous phytochemicals, well, they're down 90 to 100%. I mean, some have disappeared from the food supply entirely. So what was maintained in the food supply was just enough of the color, just enough of the characteristic taste that you would know it's a tomato, for example. But if you compare the tomatoes grown chemically to tomatoes grown organically to tomatoes grown in my own garden, you would think they're different foods because the tomatoes in my garden have way more flavor, which tells me they have more molecules. Because what produces flavor in the foods is the different molecules. So organically grown foods taste better because they have all these other diverse molecules that turn out to be really important for health. Okay, that was a long answer, but that's the whole thesis. Yeah, so that that is a great answer. Just to kind of piggyback on what you just said about chemically grown foods versus organically versus something grown in Dr. Joe's garden, is there a difference between the molecule concentration in your own garden tomatoes, let's say, versus a, you know, quote unquote, industrially grown organic type of tomato. Yeah, yes, and it's, it's, it's dramatic. Now, obviously I have not analyzed my own tomatoes. I have to compare it to other organic tomatoes. I thought maybe you had a mass spec machine in your backyard as well, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, if any of your listeners would like to fund that, my undergraduate degree happens to be in analytical chemistry. There and it is. To, to test my <laughs> garden for the nutrients and also for toxins too. Yeah. <laughs> I do everything I can to avoid the toxins, but. You know, the environment is so saturated, it's hard, it's hard to avoid them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're talking about these unimportant molecules like flavonoids, other types of phytochemicals that are not necessarily 
prevalent in the research. And we know that things that are researched are deemed important, but these other things are almost, if anything, would you say between the vitamins, minerals, amino acids, fatty acids versus these quote unquote unimportant molecules, what is the balance of importance in them in terms of human health in your estimation between the things that are researched versus not? We have to differentiate between life and health. Okay. So all those 42 nutrients are required for health, for life. Okay. Um, they're also required for health as well. But these other molecules are really the next step in promoting health. Uh, and there's just so many examples because, and, and I think one reason why it's been not recognized is because the differences can be a little bit subtle. For example, fluoritin. So fluoritin is a, a, a flavonoid that is lost when you grow foods chemically. You know, look at tomatoes, they, they lose 90% of the fluoritin uh, when their foods are grown uh, chemically. So why is fluoritin important? Well, fluoritin does things like helps us detoxify arsenic more effectively, helps protect our DNA from arsenic damage. So we add to, we do the combination then of ever increasing levels of arsenic in the population while losing these other molecules that the body utilizes for detoxification, you get more disease. But it's hard to make a one-to-one -one correlation, okay? Because it's, it's these subtle things. So we, we say, well, here's fluoritin, it's lower. But it's not just fluoritin. Thousands of other ones are lower as well. So they're all lowering it. So it means that while it's hard to say, well, this one molecule can cause all the trouble, we look at all the molecules being lower, yeah, huge physiological impacts. So Dr. Joe, thank you. And uh, let's say, you know, listener out there that is asking, well, it's so great that, you know, we're talking about these different flavonoids, different phytochemicals that are, are, are really important. What is the evidence that, that shows that if you eat more of those flavonoids, that, that people will do better and thrive more and, you know, have better health. So that's where we start starting all this phytonutrient research. Oh, this is so exciting. Look at this phytonutrient. It's going to help with that, this, that, and the other disease. Well, it's only being helpful because those molecules left the food supply. Okay. Ah, so, the, yeah. so example after example, let's look at something like um, curcumin. You might say, wait, wait, curcumin, that's a spice. Yes, but curcumin is similar to many of these other flavonoids that have been lost. So what happens when we give people curcumin clinically? Well, they have less cancer. They have less inflammation. They have lot better longevity. I mean, there's example after example of these molecules that promote the healthy function in the body. Uh, and now, oh, we're so excited. Let's put that into pill and sell it to people. Well, that's fine. We've got no problem with that, but it's supposed to be in the food supply. Okay, let's fix the food supply. Let's 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 fix it. Let's uh, start fixing it now. So how how has the food supply changed over the past a hundred years? Um, and then you know what what other kind of compounds? If you would mention some other compounds that are found in whole foods that don't exist in processed foods that that may have been lost. Right. Yeah. So um, again, a good example. So there's actually research that's compared uh, the nutrient content of food over time. A uh, number of studies that they typically uh, are only doing it back to about the 1950s because before then the technology was so poor, we don't have good data on food. Although there have been some examples where foods have been stored for long periods of time and then analyzed using current technology. So let me start right there. So there's one study that was done where they had um, what's called uh, hard red uh, uh, wheat uh, that was used to be that, that, uh, that U.S. has been shipping to Europe for over 100 years. 
Okay, we're we're as you know we're kind of the many ways the breadbasket of the country of the world. I use the term bread in, intentionally because we ship a lot of wheat all over the world. So they looked at the wheat um, trace mineral content of the wheat 123 years ago compared to now, and the trace mineral content was down by one third. Okay, not dramatic, not huge, but you know as we evolved as a species, we were expecting those minerals to be in the food. So you decrease those minerals and what well, we get from, from somewhere else, we're gonna, we're gonna have more disease. So there are many examples, many examples that typically show trace mineral content of chemically grown foods has decreased significantly compared to organic grown foods. Now the vitamin levels aren't that much different. Protein levels tend to be higher in conventionally grown foods, chemically grown foods, because they were you know, hybridized to do more, more protein. Okay, so you can see more protein, but all the other stuff is going to be a little, going to be a little bit lower. Uh, now we can look at other molecules as well. Let's look at um, uh, what's another one that I looked at that was uh, important. Uh, limonene. Now limonene hasn't decreased that much because um, we get we can get limonene in uh, citrus products and things of this nature. So it's decreased a bit. But what's fascinating is uh, there's a lot of research now looking at chemical derivatives of limonene to be used as anti-cancer agents. So limonene physiologically actually blocks, uh, last I read it was, I just cute diagram in one of my lectures, there were 22 different steps in the initiation of cancer that were blocked by limonene, okay? Wow. So now we're allowing limonene to decrease its levels in the food supply so that we can then chemically modify limonene to give it back to people to treat the cancer that was caused by removing lemonade from the food supply. Yeah. Nice, yeah. Circular, nice circular process that produces a lot of profit. Intuitive logic. Health. Yeah. Yeah. Removing it, then we're all flavonoid and phytochemical deficiency. So then we we need to consume those in in a supplement form. And and I think I'll I'll serve up a softball question here. So maybe this is is taking a supplement of flavonoids or phytochemicals, is that as good as eating the real food or what's the difference there? Yeah, good, a good, good question. So obviously the real food is always gonna be our best choice. Now, having said that, um, we can see areas where we wanna use uh, supplements of flavonoids to help make up for that problem for the food supply. But there's also some situations where a flavonoid will have a specific physiological effect that we want and so we'll give people large doses of it and also in a form that's more easily absorbable. So this is kind of interesting. Actually, I'd love your thoughts on this because I've been looking at this. The absorption of most flavonoids is only three to 5%. And the half-life of the flavonoids in the body is are typically only 12 to 24 hours. So in other words, the body does not absorb flavonoids very well and gets rid of them very quickly. And, but yet flavonoids have huge physiological effects. So I'm kind of thinking as we evolved as a species, we, have a, we had a diet that had a lot of flavonoids in it. And because they had so much control over our physiology, we had to make sure that they didn't hang around for too long a period of time, didn't do anything we didn't, didn't really want. You know, I'm just kind of anthropomorphizing what, what Mother yeah. Nature was trying to figure out. So uh, these things, uh, it's clear we don't want too much of them. Um, it's kind of hard to do though. Yeah, yeah. So so we eat them fairly constantly, but but also intermittently. And, and in a moderation, you know, in terms oh, no, of no, a whole no. foods I, I type of diet. The flavonoid level okay. in the diet has gone down pretty significantly. Yeah. However, yeah. I can't prove it. Okay. Because N. Haynes has not been tracking flavonoid levels. It's extremely okay. frustrating. So there's been okay. very little tracking, but where I can find an occasional study, it shows the flavonoid levels are lower in, in chemically grown foods. How easy is it to research flavonoids, right? We have 
data for heavy metals from NHANES. We have probably data for other things, right? But oh, you put flavonoids in and just put flavonoids into PubMed and do limits humans, and you'll get tens of thousands of articles. There's a lot. Okay, of so so we could we could study we could actually study oh. it. Yeah. Yes, that's why I wrote the article. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Look at all this research on these things that are important for health. Let's get the food supply fixed so we get them back into our food supply. So, Joe, how do we fix the food supply? You know, it's been kind of declining in terms of mineral content, flavonoid content. Uh, there's different, you know, pesticides, glyphosate, you know, all that stuff. How do we how do we actually start to restore that? Yeah, there, there's no substitute for organic farming. Now, people, the apologists for the farm will say, well, yes, but how are you going to feed the world's millions um, if you don't use all these chemicals and all these GMOs and things of this nature? It's a valid question. Uh, growing foods uh, organically rather than chemically is indeed somewhat more difficult and somewhat more expensive. But the problem with that answer, that with that with that assertion that we need this to feed all the people is because this is the pathway we've taken, we now suffer the highest burden of chronic disease in every age group ever in human history. So yeah, we make the food a little cheaper and we make healthcare way more expensive. As you know, yeah. healthcare now counts, at least in the US, for what's it, we're now up to 22% of the gross domestic product. One out of every five dollars spent in the United States is for on healthcare. Do you think it's because we're giving people foods that don't support health? Yes, we're pouring money into healthcare and taking health out of our food. That doesn't make a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So investing up front in that. Yeah, and and I think there's probably, yeah, the, the yield question is is interesting. But I wonder if using a more nutrient dense, if someone had a more nutrient dense diet, they would they would be, you know, able to thrive, you know, more than, than a nutrient poor calorie rich diet, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Every study you look at that compares, you know, standard American diet, the sad diet to a whole foods diet or a plant-based diet, it always shows the more whole foods, the more organically growing the foods, the healthier the people are. I mean, there's study after study shows the same thing, less cancer, greater longevity. And, um, you know, frankly, my own personal experience, um, yeah. my wife and I were in our mid seventies and family and friends in our age group are either dead, have major disease or they're done with life. It's just sad to see. So, so it sounds like we need to farm organically, uh, shop organically, maybe grow some of our own vegetables and, yes. and things in our as as possible. And gardens or yeah. You know, all your transport containers, uh, they have to be low toxin, they have to be class or, or uh, other low toxin uh, forms. Because even if you grow foods organically, you put it into a can, well, the can's going to be lined with bisphenols and you'll get bisphenol mm -hmm. lined. Mm -hmm. uh, besides glass, any other recommendations for storage of food? Is there anything else besides glass? Um, my glass is clearly my preference. Now, there are some plastics that are less toxic than other plastics. And I'm actually, it's one of the studies, I, I, I'm actually working on an editorial now where I'm looking at the plastic, seeing so, you know, plastics have these little numbers on them. And yeah. I'm just not going through the, the numbers to say, okay, which ones is it going to be okay for the foods to be stored in, and which ones is, is it not okay? And I, I know that IFM taught us what, the three, six, and seven are the ones that are the ones that are not as good potentially? So I'm, um, this one, my strengths and my, one of my weaknesses. Uh, one of my weaknesses is I don't tend to accept other people's opinions on what. Yes, they, trust but verify, which is to say, verify. do your own research. Now I'm yes. in the process where I'm actually directly looking at the research myself. And I don't like review awesome. articles because you look at the biases for the inclusion exclusion criteria. So I just do a brute force. I just look at a bunch of studies, not abstracts, by the way. 
65% of abstracts have errors in them ranging from minor to reporting the exact opposite of what the data showed. Okay, so you got to look at the data. Now, if the data is being faked, not much you can do about that, but there's yeah. so much fake research out there now. It's, it's really scary. I know. Did you read the Dr. Gabby's article on that? I think there was an article about how he was talking about how there's a lot of nutrition research that's that's faked, you know, and things like that. Yeah, I think I published published one of his articles on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I have, if you go to PubMed, I have two articles in PubMed where I looked at, here's an example of fraudulent research that's being used to support public policy. I mean, it's, it's stunning how bad it is. So we do know that, that, you know, vitamins, minerals found in whole foods have a better, it sounds like a better outcome for us can help us thrive, not just survive really. Um, are there certain foods that that's more important to focus on, you know, Hey, eat regeneratively and for this, but these particular kind of superfoods. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Now there, this, this will miss something, some things, but in general, the more colorful the food, the more flavonoids and carotenoids it has, and this could be healthier, pure and simple. Eat colorful foods, like blueberries, for example. Blueberries are great, uh, particularly when they're wild, wild or, or uh, farmed, but even better are bilberries, because bilberries are blue all the way through, not just in the skin. So there's any, anytime you eat a food that has a lot of color, it's gonna be healthier for you. Color and what about taste? I know that sometimes a lot of the fruits now are, are you know, uh, cultivated for sweetness, for, for the, the sugar content, you know, let's say. So so you can have a really plump, quote unquote, organic blueberry and it, it tastes like I'm eating sugar, right? Versus like the, the wild blueberry from Maine or something yes. or Canada or something. Yes. Um, is, there a, is there a difference in like the taste of a food? You said color, that makes a lot of the, sense. The difference in the taste in the food is due to the unimportant molecules. I mean, there's yeah. some exceptions like sweet is sweet, salty, salty, things like that. But in general, most of the things that give food a, a, a flavor a characteristic flavor, those are all these other molecules. Uh, and I have a great anecdote on this. So uh, way back in the late 70s, I had a patient uh, who had just uh, opened uh, a new restaurant in Seattle and it was getting all this praise for just wonderful restaurant, great food, incredible chefs, etc. So he, um, he was my patient and he came to see me. He says, well, you know, I know my secret. I said, well, yeah, he said, all my food is organic. I don't mm. use my own foods. So I'm starting out with food that itself tastes better. So all my chefs need to do is kind of tweak it rather than to cover up the lack of taste with, with uh, all these uh, spices and such. So he didn't yeah, tell Yeah, that's me. the number one rule. Number one rule for restaurants is start with good food. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah exactly. Cooking, he was the number cooking. one restaurant in Seattle and everybody thought <laughs> he had good chefs. No, he had good food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the chefs are just taking that wisdom from nature there, that, yeah. that bounty. Uh, so we can bring unimportant molecules. It sounds like back into our diets by, by reviving the re refertilizing, if you will, the, the, yes. uh, the farming system, yes. um, maybe growing some of our own foods, um, educating, which is what you're doing here. So thank you very much for that. Um, are there any other, um, uh, I guess, I guess I have a question more, more clinically, which, you know, obviously, we're, we're a clinic as well. Um, if, if our food system is not, you know, healthy right now, as we're building this up, should everyone be on a, you know, phyto multivitamin kind of situation or, you know, how, what do you think about that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, actually, uh, Mike Murray, I just finished writing a new book, uh, intentionally titled the case for supplements. 
And we point out that first off, the food supply is so depleted. We need nutri nutritional supplements to take care of that. But the other problem, as we've talked about before, is the environment is so polluted. And the way that many of these toxins worse is by competing for uh, cofactors in enzyme systems. And those cofactors in enzyme systems are typically vitamins and minerals. So you have yeah. a higher level of a toxin, you need more of the vitamin or mineral to compete with the toxin for the enzyme system so it'll work properly. So it's not only uh, replacing what's missing from the food supply, it's protecting the cells from this environment. So, so it sounds like it's basic biology, enzymatic kinetics. We just need more of those vitamins to overcome the toxins inhibition of the enzyme activity. Is that basically? Exactly. exactly. And then we, we know that a lot of these things like air pollution increase oxidative stress. So now we need more antioxidants to protect us from the oxidant oxid stress. Yeah. Yeah. We're dealing with the uh, wildfires right now. And, oh uh, yeah. You're good, good example. Well, I mean, from Canada, you know, coming, coming down, but it, it really affects, you know, it's a global, global situation. We're all connected. So, yes. um, and I, I do want to kind of touch on, on something. I think you probably have fun with, uh, HTB. So Dr. Bland's, uh, Himalayan tartary buckwheat. Have you, have you tried that? Is that, is that considered a, a superfood here, uh, that you would recommend? Uh, oh, sure. I mean, this is something that seems like it has a lot of different chem phytochemicals in it. Yes, actually, uh, you know, Jeff's a friend of mine. We've been talking about it. And uh, it, what's, what's, oh, th this is another interesting aspect of all this. So we look at the phytonutrient content of food. What makes it go up? What makes it go down? Well, one thing that makes it go down is using chemical fertilizers. Another yeah. thing that makes it go down is by using glyphosate. So glyphosate is a widely used herbicide. Uh, and everybody, I think, is aware of Roundup and things like that. It damages the microzome of the microflora of the earth, so that the plants then cannot uh, uh, can't grow properly, and it poisons what's called the shikimic pathway. The shikimic pathway, they say it's okay to poison that because it only exists in plants. That's true, but they use the shikimic pathway to produce polyphenols, which is what flavonoids are. And so what happens? Oh, oh, wow. itself makes the, uh, the polyphenols go down. That are, that are so important. Another one that this was a surprise that I that was a big surprise to me and changed my gardening technique. We all know about tilling the soil. Kind of standard thing you do. You have your, your crops done. Now you till the soil and, and bring the um, you know plant material down, down underneath so it can compost. Well, that's fine. The problem is when you till the soil, you again break up the microflora of the soil, and plants that are grown on tilled soil, even if organic, have less flavonoids. So there's so many oh, things we need okay. to do. We need to stop putting chemicals in, or else we need to change how we um, modify our soil. Yeah. And and just to add about the shikimate pathway, it sounds like it also affects our own gut microbiome, right? Because we have bacteria it affects our in own our gut, gut, gut and... as well. Yes. And I, I'm aware of it doing that. I haven't I haven't dug, dug into research enough now to understand what exactly is happening clinically, but we do know it is happening. Yeah. This is, um talked to Dr. Uh, Stephanie Seneff on our podcast. She was chatting about about that um from hawaii i think yes. uh def de definitely um you know what affects the soil and the plants is going to affect us i mean that's basically since we're we're part of nature you know we we're nature is with inside of us as well that's i think what maybe maybe a mind it's a mindset thing i mean do we do we just consumers of food and we're maybe not as connected to the earth as we used to be so then we kind of see all these shiny packages at Costco. Yeah. Oh, it must be good. It says organic or, you know, or it's the lowest price. So I'm going to buy this. Um, how can we increase our awareness of 
of this um, issue here? So let me answer that a little differently. I believe that the only solution to this is going to be consumer decisions. Okay. Right. So when the consumers go out and only buy organically grown foods and don't buy chemical grown foods, those chemical grown foods, they're going to become less frequent. I, I, I'm not exactly answering your question, but I'm trying to say, what do we do? That, that is, it's the, what the, the, the consumer has the, the power, the checkbook of the power of the checkbook or, you know, yeah. Uh, I mean, going to most any conventional uh, grocery store, at least in uh, areas that are more health conscious, and almost all of them now have an organic section of some sort, okay? 20 years ago, none of them had it. So we, we're, we're having an impact. Yeah, yeah. And, and where do you see on the horizon for like big farms? Are they also basically trying to convert some of their or a lot of their um, agriculture to organic? Well, they're supposed to. Unfortunately, I think too much of the work, this is my opinion, I don't know if it's true or not, but what it looks like, much of the work is uh, trying to convince Congress to loosen up the laws for what you can call organic so it can slip in more and more uh, polluted food into our food supply. So right mm -hmm. now, the organic standards are pretty worrisome. Um, and I would, um, we, we have the advantage here in Seattle where we have Puget Consumers Co-op and they actually work with local farmers to make sure they're doing true organic food. So I know that when I buy from them and when I grow my own food, it's organic. When I start going to the big grocery stores and buying their organic foods, their standards are clearly uh, lower because of the many loopholes the Congress has allowed because of uh, lobbying by agribusiness. Yeah, I, I think certainly there's ways to dilute laws that are not beneficial to human health necessarily, but maybe beneficial to corporations. Um, just to touch, I think, on list, for listeners as well, this is another important point that we've said a couple of times in this podcast, but I think it's really important is um, there's a lot of buzzwords out there, right? There's natural, right? You know, if you go to like Target, all natural Cheez-Its or something, right? right? <laughs> or something. And then, then there's organic, there's regenerative. What is what is the difference between? Uh, I think it's it's just a basic point, but it's probably important for people to understand this. What is natural when it says natural? You know, what is organic, and then what is regenerative or pasture raised or something like that? Yeah, and as I can tell, the term natural has not much meaning. Meaning, uh, everybody likes the idea, but when it comes down to actually the definition of what you can call natural, what you can't, the loophole is so big. It, I think it's essentially meaningless. So organic is going to be better. Um, uh, I, as I mentioned before, if you actually know the farms that are growing the foods and go and visit them, by the way, I've done that. You, everybody should do that. You go visit the farms that are growing the food, see what they're actually doing, okay? And you may be a little, maybe a little surprised, hopefully positively, but there can be some negative as well. Now, regenerative, I think is fantastic uh, con concept, but again, near, as I can tell, it doesn't have much um, uh, rigorous meaning, okay? So I like the idea, what's the real meaning? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I trust are, are the are, are the solutions to either have have your own farm, visit the farm, go to a co-op that, you know, sells products from like a CSA or a farmer's farmer's market, things like that? I think that's that's best. So yes, grow grow, grow but buy organic where we can, even if this marginal still still be better. But yeah. everything we can to help the local farmers grow organically and hold them to it. And we also know that just because a product is not USDA organic labeled, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not organic or good for you. In fact, a lot of 
I remember there's a, uh, there's a USDA organic label is very expensive, I believe, to, yes. to put on, on their products. So a lot of local farmers may not be able to afford that. Yes, a, a very, very valid point. And so that's one reason why it's good to just talk to the farmers, see what they're actually doing. Uh, mm -hmm. Because a lot of the smaller farmers can't afford that's super expense. I think sometimes going to those farmer's markets and you get eating these salad greens and I'm eating them. And as I, as I put my fork into the mouth, you know, my mouth, I see a little bug on it. I'm like, wow, that food must be, I don't eat the bug, but I'm like, Hey, that, that food's probably pretty good. You know, yeah. the bugs yeah, on some it. Bugs in your food is a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> great. Uh, well, I, I think this is a really great conversation, Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for talking about unimportant molecules. What is one thing that you wish everyone knew about these unimportant molecules, just to kind of sum that up a bit? The better the food tastes without spices, the healthier the food is likely to be. Okay. How's that sound? Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really great that's a really great point. Um, in terms of supplementation, because I know I know we we talked about that a little bit. Do you have certain supplements that you're kind of like as an insurance policy or is something to kind of optimize health you would you would recommend here? Yes. So yeah, I've been doing this for a long time and I take a fair number of supplements and I've done more and more. I've tried to take a wide variety of supplements of, of different molecules at relatively lower dosages. So rather than okay. trying to get everything done with high doses of one thing, I think it's better to do low doses of a wide range of things. So I, I like using supplements that are more food concentrate kinds of things. So I use a bilberry extract, um, I, I use uh, a curcumin extract. Um, I use uh, grape grapeseed extract, uh, CoQ10, um, and of course things like vitamin C. Thank you. Um, and I've been waiting over ten years to ask this question. Now that you're writing a book on multivitamins with Dr. Murray, no pressure. But um, I've been wondering about multivitamins and how they interact with the AR2 system, the antioxidant response system. And I'm wondering if there is any benefit to not taking a multivitamin daily and sort of allowing your body to generate antioxidants on its own, or is it better just to say, "Hey, daily"? God, that's a great question. I. I... Um, <laughs> there's this research showing that if you take high levels of antioxidants, when you have oxidant stress, you won't upregulate your own. Uh, it's a hermetic stress. effect, right? It's kind of a hermetic yeah, effect, thing, potentially. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, you know, it's a good question, and that's also one of the reasons why I use a wide variety of these things rather than a high dose of one thing. Okay, so yeah, yeah. as much as possible to say, okay, body, here's all the tools you need. I want to make sure all those tools are there free to use your wisdom to make me healthy. And I won't force you to do something that um, uh, that you may not want to do. And, and actually, let me add something here. People are getting really excited now about activated uh, nutrients. So for example, now B6 is not particularly active until it becomes P5P. Well, now we have a lot of people just taking a large dose of P5P. That makes me nervous because you usually... The body has a regulatory system for a reason. It only it takes the B, B6 in the diet, converts a certain amount to P5P. So if you start putting a lot of P5P in there, well, now you're superseding the body's decision on how much P5P is going to produce. I'm not saying don't take P5P. What I'm saying is only take P5P if we know we have a genetic reason why we can't convert B6 to P5P the way we should. So just a fair warning, folks, high doses of these activated nutrients may not be an optimal strategy. So, but low doses of the activated nutrients, probably just fine. I think that probably goes the same way for things like um, 
you know, they activated folate, activated cobalamins. Uh, it would be something similar to that in terms of methylation. Yeah, although fol folate is, is a different story. So one thing, nobody should be taking folic acid uh, because that is not a normal molecule. It, it's actually at high dose, it can, can become toxic. So folic acid is only useful when it becomes methylated uh, and then it goes into helping remove homocysteine. Well, food sources of folate are already methylated. They don't have to go through MTHFR. Okay, so when a person is going to be taking a folate supplement, that's the example where I do recommend you get the methylated folate, not the folic acid. Okay, yeah. you might say well, that's the activated form of the version nutrient. No, that's actually the normal version of the nutrient. So I'm okay with the activated folate because normal, this is a normal version. Got it. Okay. Great. Well, as you know, part of our mission here at Capital Integrative Health is making integrative healthcare more accessible, which we're doing with this podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. Joe. And focusing on the small steps, little tiny steps we can take to improve our health. So we'd love to hear from you, Dr. Joe. What is one thing under $20 that you feel personally has transformed your own health? And we talked about supplements, so I don't know how many are under $20. We'll just go with uh, maybe other things. Um, I just bought a 25-pound uh, bag of organic fertilizer for $20. Nice. I think that does it. That 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 would that would do it. That's actually gonna generate a lot of a lot of yeah, great lot food. Of, uh, probably worth more than $20. Yes. Give, give well, one of the fun things my wife and my wife and I are doing in our garden is we're not planting just one version of uh, of plant like kale. We're planting six different kales. They all okay. take different. And the fact that they all taste different means they all have different molecules in them. Okay. You know, most yeah. of the molecules can be the same, but they're each going to have their own distinct different molecule in it. So variety is the spice of life, or we should say the variety of, variety, variety of life variety. to help your health. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, well, we look forward to your next book coming out. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. Uh, if you would just also repeat your website or other you know, resources that you know people want to learn more about your educational content and everything. So my website is currently down because I'm updating it. It's drpizorin.com. And my, I think my two most important books now are The Toxin Solution uh, for Consumers, where I tell people how toxic cause and damage and how to get them out of the body. And then, of course, good old Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine. It still contains huge amounts of directly relevant research to help people get healthier. Now, if it's a doctor listening to this and you're interested in environmental medicine, my textbook, Clinical Environmental Medicine, uh, lays out the, the most advanced uh, information we have now about how you assess toxic load and how you get toxins out of people. And and for the clinicians out there, I, I have the book at home. Uh, it's a great book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Joe. Great to see you. Good to you. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of the Capital Integrative Health Podcast. A quick reminder that the information we share in this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only. It's not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We highly recommend that you speak to a qualified healthcare provider before making any medical or healthcare decisions. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few moments to subscribe and leave us a review. Your reviews help us reach more people and continue to offer innovative insights and information to better optimize your health and wellness.